Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from one of our elders. Hello, I'm Lindsay McNay. Welcome to week two of our online worship experience at First Alliance Church. I serve as an elder here at First Alliance. A couple of months ago, Pastor John asked me if I'd be willing to share the message on March 29th. When I said yes, little did anyone know how much our world would change in that short amount of time. Wherever you are as you watch this, I know you've been affected by the changes in life and lifestyle brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic that has swept our planet. I pray that today finds you safe from harm, free from fear, and trusting in the Lord Jesus, our Savior who loves us dearly. Starting in late 2019, we've been on a quest to spend a year with Jesus by going through the Gospel of Luke. Today, I'll be sharing from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Whether in print or electronically, I encourage you to find this passage and follow along. Before we begin, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts today and for your sake. Lord, we, uh, we pray that uh, we would be able to share with others the message of hope and good news uh, of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In Luke 7, verses 1 through 17, we will encounter, as Jesus did, two very different people with vastly different levels of status, but one very common concern. They're facing a situation, not of their own making, that's completely beyond their ability to control. I'll be reading from the New International Version, starting with the first ten verses, a section which I'll call Jesus, Face, Faith, and the fear of death. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Here, Jesus encounters a powerful but unusual man, an unnamed Roman centurion. And he does so in peculiar fashion. 
they don't actually see each other face to face. I call the centurion powerful. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica and several other sources I looked at, Roman centurions were veteran soldiers chosen from the best of the rank and file of legionnaires. They had to be able to read and have connections to get the letters of recommendation that were necessary for promotion, and they had a higher social standing than most citizens. They were given broad authority over the troops under their command. Centurions also enforced a strict discipline that was common in the imperial, imperial army of that time, often with a vine staff or vine rod called a vitus. It was about three feet long and used to mete out punishment to lax or wayward soldiers, insolent subjects of conquered territories, and at times also Roman citizens. No wonder that fear and even cruelty became synonymous with centurions. But this powerful centurion in Luke 7 was also remarkably special. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, There's there a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion was concerned about a servant. Some translations use the word slave. Others use bondservant. In any case, under Roman law, the servant was considered merely property of the owner. The centurion could do with him as he pleased. But despite the servant's condition, he was sick and about to die, the centurion valued him highly. In verse 3 we read, The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. He didn't go directly to Jesus. Instead, he had Jewish elders act as his go-between. We might guess the centurion had likely forged some level of friendship with them. We know they went to find Jesus. Both his compassion for his servant and his enlisting Jewish leaders mark him as something more than a stereotype of what a centurion might be. The centurion sent for Jesus because he was up against a situation he could not control death. Isn't that just like you and me? We might seek out medical assistance, we might pray, but ultimately, life and death are not in our hands, they're in God's. Many times, that which we do not understand, or that which is beyond our ability to control, can cause us to worry. The longer a situation or event that we can't control goes on, the more likely it is that worry will descend into fear. I had a situation like that. 25 years ago, I traveled out to Oregon to climb in the Three Sisters Mountain Wilderness. My brother Sean and I, along with our friend Mark Erickson, were going to climb the Middle Sister, just over 10,000 feet. Sean and I and two friends had climbed the South Sister the year before, and we had a great time. It was 300 feet taller than the middle sister, so I thought, no problem. We got to near the top, and Mark channeled his inner mountain goat and zoomed right up to the summit. But somewhere between 100 and 150 feet from the top, I lost the trail and ended up in a field of scree. I was slipping and sliding on these broken rock fragments that were very slick. Then I looked down. I realized if I didn't stop right now, I could fall hundreds of feet before I hit anything to break my fall. I froze with fear. 
I didn't want to make my wife Sue a widow. Our son Carson was 18 months old. I started thinking I'd miss watching him grow up. I had to stay still because the only direction I could go was down in a hurry. I called out to Sean. He could tell I needed help and carefully made his way down. He first directed my steps, telling me which way to move, and then got into position to reach his hand out to me. If he hadn't come back for me, I'd still be up there, frozen like a glacier. I tell that story because even if you can't relate to climbing mountains, everyone experiences moments of fear. Perhaps you're fearful right now over the transmittable virus causing COVID-19. It's not only out of your ability to completely control, but it's also invisible, unless you happen to own your own electron microscope. Mine happens to be out for repairs right now. It's natural to fear death. And while some say that death is a normal part of life, all of us, to one degree or another, have a fear of dying. But the centurion did the only thing he could do over a situation he could not control. He sought out Jesus. Even if the centurion believed it was his only option, seeking out Jesus wasn't an act of fear. It was an act of faith. Isn't that also a good lesson for us? Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Continuing on in verses 4 and 5, the Jewish elders share the centurion's story and plead his worthiness to Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And the first part of verse 6 says, so Jesus went with them. Here's further evidence of the atypical, even astonishing character of this particular centurion. The elders pleaded his case earnestly before Jesus, and they let Jesus know he had built their synagogue, signs of mutual love and respect between conqueror and conquered, which makes this account all the more noteworthy. So Jesus goes with them to the centurion, showing the spirit of the gospel, that God wants everyone to know and trust in him. As Paul says in Romans 3.29, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. The scriptures don't record the reaction of the elders. Was it, yes, we did it. He's coming to heal a centurion's servant. Or was it closer to, wow, I can't believe Jesus is actually going with us. What do you think your reaction would have been? In any case, in the second part of the story, we're about to see two things repeated from the first part. One, the sending of others on the centurion's behalf, and two, the centurion's faith. Verses 6 and 7. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Not once, but twice, the centurion sends others to act as his emissaries. Wouldn't we be excited to see Jesus face to face? 
One possible reason he did this was out of respect for Jesus. As a Gentile familiar with Jewish ceremonial law, he might have wished to spare Jesus from becoming ritually unclean, as he would have been had he entered the centurion's house. Not that it ever stopped Jesus from doing right. He consistently stressed the spirit of the law, forgiveness and gratitude, over the letter of the law. Nevertheless, what is on display is the centurion's faith, his total confidence in the power of Jesus over sickness and the Lord's desire and readiness to show kindness and mercy, love and grace. I find it fascinating that the elders pleaded the centurion's worthiness, but his friends, presumably using his own words, pleaded his unworthiness. Matthew Henry's commentary points out that Jesus chose to respond to the centurion's humility and quotes James 4.6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The centurion's humility is further shown in verse 8. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man of authority clearly knows his place. In his local area and within his sphere of influence, his word is as good as law. He's an authority, but far from sovereign. He knows that he can't overrule sickness and death. More to the point, he knows Jesus can. But say the word and my servant will be healed. That's faith. Look at how the story ends. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus commends the centurion's faith and does so at the expense of Israel. Ouch. In this case, faith was found in an unexpected source. So Jesus heals the servant without ever seeing him. Jesus also saw, never saw his master, the centurion, but he didn't have to. He saw something much greater, the centurion's faith. The next part of the narrative is Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. I'll call this section, Jesus, Compassion, and the Power Over Death. Verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, Get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Jesus and his entourage continue their road trip by walking to the town of Nain. 
Today, you could drive the roughly 30 miles between Capernaum and Nain, and it would take under an hour. Back then, though, by foot, it's a day and a half or two-day journey. And it's a good thing that Jesus is leading uh, the disciples because if he were behind the multitude following them, he'd be eating a lot of dust. When he approached the town gate, he came across a large funeral procession. It's interesting that there are two large crowds mentioned in verses 11 and 12, and they couldn't be more dissimilar. One is following death. The other follows life, or more specifically, the bread of life. It's in the crowd carrying the deceased that we meet a grieving widow and mother. Like the centurion, she had a predicament beyond her control. Unlike the centurion, the widow has no authority, no status, and quite possibly, no hope. As a widow, she's already endured tragedy with the loss of her husband. And then tragedy number two knocks at her door with the death of her son, her only son. Given the lowly situation of women in that culture and era, the son's death would likely have had economic implications for his mother. In verse 13, we see the compassion of Christ. What tenderness, or excuse me, verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. What tenderness and love the Lord shows her. Doesn't he do the same for us? Shouldn't we do the same for others? It's normal that children bury their parents. After all, age does take its toll. And even though it happens more than we care to admit, parents shouldn't have to bury their children. But it happens. In 2012, my next older brother, Reed, died. He had contracted a virus which had weakened his heart, greatly reducing its efficiency to pump blood. Two years older than me, Reed was 55 when he passed away. His wife, Pippa, had been in contact with me and my brothers. She told my younger brother, Sean, that she couldn't bear to tell the news to our mother and asked if Sean would. Sean said yes and immediately called me. We agreed that we couldn't tell mom over the phone because five years earlier, mom had suffered a stroke which had affected her ability to communicate. We knew we had to tell her in person. Sean drove from Quincy, Washington, and I met him the next day in Missoula where our mother was living in an assisted living home. It was one of the most awkward situations I've ever experienced. She was beside herself with grief. All of us struggled for understanding, but God was gracious and gave us comfort in our anguish. Our dad had passed away seven years earlier, so like the widow in Luke, our mother had lost a husband and a son. The next, next thing that Jesus says is another mind-blowing statement that only he can say. Don't cry. Most counselors would tell you that no two people grieve exactly alike. We cry for the shared experience that will be no more, on this earth anyway. We weep that the joy of being together will be replaced with the fear of being alone. When Jesus says, don't cry, it's really a command. 
He's going to prove, yet again, that his word is his bond. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. First, Jesus touches the funeral bier and stops the entire crowd in its tracks. Talk about turning heads. The late Chuck Smith wrote in his Bible commentary, Now in those days, they did not have caskets. They usually carried them in baskets and put them in a sarcophagus. The word sarcophagus comes from the Latin, means flesh eater. A sarcophagus was commonly made of limestone, whose properties are thought to uh, spur on a relatively rapid decomposition of the body. Later, the bones would be recovered and buried. Then Jesus says, young man, I say to you, get up. Have you ever thought about what the two crowds were thinking that day? Was it, shh, here comes another miracle? Or perhaps, what does he think he's doing? If they wondered if Jesus had power over death, they wouldn't have to wait long for an answer. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. The man was dead and called back to life. Could anyone have been happier than the man's mother, the widow? Now she knew why Jesus told her, don't cry. The passage closes with praise, and we hope a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, what he came for, and how he wants us to respond to him. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. The compassion that Jesus showed the widow is the same compassion he desires to show us. And like the new life he gave to her only son, he desires to give to us. But far, far better. For the resurrection promised to those of us who place our trust in Christ will be for eternity. As John put it so succinctly in his gospel, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the true hope for un the uncertain times of our troubled and fallen planet. Join me now in a closing word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you do have power over death. We thank you that you grant that to us as well uh, when we believe in you. Father, I pray that uh, this coming week that we would not live in fear, but that we would remember your promises and live with hope, and that we would share these with those that don't know you. Father, I ask your blessing on our church and the other churches that cannot meet together at this time. I pray that you would help us stay connected and remember that we serve one Lord together, even if we're physically apart. Father, thank you. We ask for your blessing on the words, uh, your words today, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. 
follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.